You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is Tommy's Outdoors 129, and this is another episode of the podcast where I talk with the author of the nature book. And the author and our guest this time is Patrick Galbraith. And his book, In Search of One Last Song, Britain's Disappearing Birds, and the people trying to save them. There is a here's the book. This is how it looks like for those of you who watching this on YouTube. And as usual, the the link to the book uh, is in the description of the show. Uh, this is affiliate link, so you can go in there, get yourself this book, and while you at it, you will help the podcast because I will be getting a small commission. Uh, when you buy this book. And and by the way, uh, those uh, affiliate links work uh, no matter what you're buying. So if you need, for example, a duct tape, um, you can just go into Amazon through my affiliate link in the description of this show and just, you know, do your search, search for your duct tape or whatever else you need and buy that. And I'm also going to get a small commission and this is great help in... Uh, yeah, uh, ever-rising cost of running this podcast. So uh, do your thing and support uh, support me, support the podcast, buy yourself a book or a duct tape or whatever else you need on Amazon. All right. Um, now, when it comes to the book, uh, very interesting conversation. And as usual, when you get to talk about uh, various species of animals, whether these are birds or whether these are animals that are somehow related um, because they're living in the same habitat, there is controversy. Uh, I guess this is just the name of the game. And these days, whatever you're talking about the animals, uh, there's controversy. So we talk about hen harriers, capricelli, moonjack, pie martin, badgers, the whole deal. Um, very interesting conversation uh, about a very interesting book. Uh, I'm going to leave it at that. And uh, just one last thing, reminder that I have a newsletter now. And this is very important for me. So all of you subscribe to this newsletter. Again, the link, in, the link is uh, in the description of the show uh, to the newsletter. Go in there, subscribe to the newsletter to stay in touch with everything that's going on and everything that will be going on in Tommy's Outdoors. And, you know, you know just by the way, you might heard that, that I recorded a new podcast series. And uh, that new podcast series, uh, not related to Tommy's Outdoors, but kind of like a um, perhaps similar type of conversations uh, where uh, we talk about trying to present a balanced view on a number of issues. And obviously, if you wanna, if you're interested, and if you wanna listen to that new new series uh, episodes, new series of episodes, and a new podcast, I will be um, letting you know about it in the newsletter. Uh, among the, uh, many other things. So that newsletter kind of replaced the uh, notifications about the new podcast episodes that you used to have from my website, but also uh, many more. So go in there in the description of the show and subscribe to the newsletter, Tommy's Outdoors newsletter. 
and buy yourself a great book. And now um, listen to our conversation uh, with Patrick Galbraith, the author of the book. I am sure you will enjoy it. Patrick, it's good to hear you. Good to see you. Good to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you I, I have you on my radar as a guest for the podcast for quite a while uh, since the infamous webinar that shall rename Nameless. And now you have a book, In Search yeah. of the One Last Song, Britain's Disappearing Birds and the People Trying to Save Them. Indeed. Um, and, you know, it's a substantial book. People who are watching this on YouTube can see me. It's a, it's, a, it's a big book, very well put together. I always start those reviews saying, like, how the book looks like, how it feels in the hand. What the cover looks like. That's all, all that matters, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah some, say, some say so. So anyway, it's not a book that you take for your commute because it's big. It's rather a book like you put it on your coffee table and you pay attention and you open and you read and then you close it. That's how I feel it uh, about this book. And also one of the things, like probably for the first time, I read like a really good argument why Moonjack is an invasive species. I right. exposed myself a little bit as an ignorant. I should know that earlier, but that now it was a really good argument, which we get into later on. But I just want to start with what was your motivation to write this book? Why, why this book? Why In Search of One Last Song? I think the motivation was twofold. You know, I wanted to go and see these birds, these 10 species that feature in this book, because I was aware that if I, if I didn't go and see them, I might never get the chance to do so. So if I didn't see a capercaillie um, and a turtle dove and the nightingale soon, you know, and, and in 25 or 30 years time, I might look back and realize that that chance has gone. Um, but I also became very aware that there was a sort of deep knowledge and a lot of passion out there um, that just wasn't actually really being captured at all. Um, so I think that, you know, there are lots of people out there doing tremendous things in terms of conservation. And there are people who have this real connection to the land who often um, their voices just don't really get heard. And we live in a very funny time, I think, where you know, you don't have to look very far to find people who say that, you know, nobody listens to them or that they've been cancelled or no platformed or whatever it may be. But actually, there are lots of people out there um, who who really don't um, have a have a have a platform. And, um, you know, so I wanted to speak to those guys, to people like, you know, reed cutters and thatchers and so on and hedge layers, people who um, who spend their whole lives with these birds that, that are on the, on the brink of disappearing in, in some instances, um, and have a lot to say, but, um, but, you know, not enough people are listening to, uh, to what it is that they've got to say. Mm. So it was like a bit, kind of like a historical record almost for, you know, in, in case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Deserve those birds. Like a sort of oral, oral history. Um, so I wanted to listen to the birds and I wanted to listen to the people. Um, so, and sometimes you just, you know, you, you have a, suddenly you, you hit on something and you decide that you've got to do that. And I suppose I also, I read a lot of nature writing. I review a lot of nature writing. Um, and there's a real, um, sort of, uh, 
vogue for books written by people who go out and I think there's something that they want to find. Um, they, they sort of project uh, their way of understanding the world onto the world and onto the land. Um, and I kind of wanted to try and go out there uh, without any preconceptions as much as it's possible to do so and to just uh, listen and to try and understand and to see if my views uh, were, were changed. You know, when I was reading your book, one thing that drew my attention is that there is a lot of descriptions, a lot of like a, a descriptions that are building like an image, very visual about the coffee drops on the table. And it gives this uh, very immersive experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the, the cultural scenes, people repairing something, repairing the roof or, or something. So I think there's a lot of value in that book um, outside of just nature, yeah, and, certainly, and, yeah, you know, capturing that, and I think that that goes hand in hand. This immersive experience, you know, I, it's a good writing. Like my 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 writing teacher would say, it's a good writing with all those, all those. So I just want to acknowledge that that it's not like straight to the point. It's it, it's a lot of a lot more, and I think that but not large- everybody likes that. You know, that's a, that's an interesting thing, and I think it's a very interesting thing in terms of publishing. So. Um, you know, I, I sort of joke that, you know, you can publish sort of like, there are six different types of books that, that, that publishers are happy to publish. So, you know, a book about birds is one and so on. And so I guess this is probably a book that's about people and culture, as you say, to a greater extent than um, than, than, than one might think when, when you start to read it, which I think was definitely the right way to go. But it's, it's interesting how people's um, sort of responses differ. No, and, I, and like I said, uh, you know, the, the large format goes well with this immersive experience because then, you, you know, when you're reading on a commute, I don't think you would, you would, you know, dedicate sufficient attention to kind of Maybe, immer- yeah. immerse yeah. yourself in the, everything that's going on. And in that way, it, it was kind of new uh, versus other books that I read so far that, that gives, gives that, that thing. What was your favorite chapter to write? Because, because you're bringing us, you're bringing the reader also through the, like a, almost your own process of writing this book and you're yeah. going through all those people. So which, which chapter is like either favorite or most memorable? Because I was traveling a lot during when COVID was kind of happening. So I was snatching these chances when the government said, okay, you can get out now, you can go and do this. I was kind of, you know, so I almost felt like I was kind of running ahead of the wave often, but it took me to places that I often couldn't tell how different because I'd never been there before those places felt to how they would have felt um, normally. So I think, I mean, I remember uh, standing there in Rochdale, which is just just sort of outside Manchester or Greater Manchester, on the canal there um, at dawn, and that really sort of state there was a real eeriness to it, and that's a, a really post-industrial space. So I think you know scenes like that, and then that chapter moves to Manchester, and I spent time with a guy who campaigns um, for various birds to become the sort of uh, the official bird of, say, Salford or other parts of Manchester. And, and you know, I think his passion was really terrific and the way that he sort of understood that place um, and the way that I think, you know, those bits of the book where people understand uh, their own identity in some way in relation to these birds, I think is really interesting. So it'd be very hard for me to say, but I think the lapwing chapter um is probably my probably my favorite chapter. Oh, the Lapwing one. Yeah, yeah, I think so. What was yeah. your what what which chapters st- stuck with you the most? Oh, I I think about the kittiwakes. Oh, really interesting. Y- yeah, yeah, about the kittiwakes, and, and and we get there um, for sure today. One before we go there, I just I just want to 
ask you like two more questions about like a process of, sure, of, write, sure, of, yeah, of writing yeah. that book because I, I just because this the, the process of writing the book is so visible and in, in, you know in the book itself yeah <laughs> almost felt like you it was like a self self documenting um, yeah you you didn't manage to get to some of the people that you want to talk no to. no I didn't well, no. so I would like I would like to give us like a like a scoop what was your um you know ratio did you hit like a 50 or 80 or 90 percent of ones that you did and which were which is like the one that was like damn it biggest well uh, i suppose you know, regret uh, yeah at, at the time you um at the time you spend your you know I, I lay awake like many many nights you know hoping that a person was going to reply to my letter or phone call or whatever it was um and that they were going to say yes i could i could go and see them and um it was complicated at that time to go and see people um and Colin because Sims, of COVID. because of COVID, yeah, and and that was very interesting because suddenly we 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 became like kind of hostile bodies, and to go and see someone was almost a kind of you know, uh, yeah, it was it was really interesting. I mean, often I was you know in the way that you would just ask someone in their house, oh, can I can I go to your toilet? You know, when I did go and see them, I felt I couldn't say that because suddenly, sort of like you know, the 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 body had become this this kind of thing to be feared. Other people's bodies had become this thing to be feared. Um, but you know, Colin Sims, who's in my Hen Harrier chapter, who's this this Hen Harrier poet. He's got a collection called Hen Harrier Poems that I've got here somewhere. You know, I couldn't go and see him. I didn't find him. I looked very hard, um, and. Uh, sort of you know in a way not finding him became or rather looking for him and not finding him became this little subplot that is woven through the book in a in a way or woven through that chapter anyway so so yeah I mean at the time I deeply regretted not being able to find some of the people I really wanted to find and I look back now and I realize that actually that was all part of the journey and that sort of you know made the book what it is was it like only people you didn't manage to reach out or was there people who they just you know point blank refused they don't just didn't want a publicity or whatever uh i mean pe people when people are passionate about things i think they're often happy to share that passion i mean you know some some of these people i knew some of them i really didn't know some of them were very hard to find and i think that what i really wanted to do was to speak to people um you know, who are sort of slightly off grid. You know, I didn't want to just go and speak to those obvious people that, you know, everybody's heard lots from. So, you know, there was there was one guy who was saying to me, you know, why didn't you speak to the people at NEP, um, you know, NEP Castle, the rewilding project? And I was thinking, well, because, you know, I think those guys have, have, have said an awful lot. Um, so I sort of, it's difficult when you want to try and find people who sort of, um, you know, haven't, haven't really featured that much in anything before, um, because kind of where do you start? But the process, I suppose, was that, you know, one thing led to another thing led to another thing. So like in my Bitten chapter, I start with the Thatcher and he says to me that for four generations, his family have got thatch from, uh, you know, this family called the Randalls in Norfolk. So I then ended up in Norfolk for two weeks trying to find a member of the Randall family. Um, and I had this extraordinary, I spent a lot of time going around the coast trying to find these guys. And, um, Somebody said to me in the end, oh, Henry Randall doesn't live around here. He could never afford to live around here. He lives like 15 miles inland because of the complete sort of, you know, gentrification or second home ownership going on in those villages. So I ended up finding him, you know, so far inland that you couldn't even see the sea. And he was mending his crab pots there um, on this rainy day. So, 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 yeah, you know, it was a book that was never going to end in a way because there was always somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. Um, but I made a lot of, I was, there was a lady I went to see in Northumberland, a poet, and poetry features a lot in this 
book, um, of course. And, um, you know, she put on her on her blog that she had been a bit reluctant to see me because, you know, things were whatever. But she said, you know, how much it had sort of meant to her that the way that I wrote about this conversation and, it, you know, the conversation meant an awful lot to me. I think that was, to me, one of the most powerful points of the book. So to sort of read that, you know, she said, I think something like, uh, I felt that, you know, that day walking around in Beadnell, I made a new friend. And I thought that was, that was just so, uh, that was so lovely. And these different, I think because there are so many different people in this book who see land very differently and whose relationship with land and birds is very different. It was, it was very interesting to meet, um, you know, those people sort of back to back or in quick succession because you very quickly built up this vast and complex picture. It was like a, you know, pretty substantial adventure where you were right. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a lot of miles. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of, yeah, it's funny. I mean, a lot of like sleeping out under in caves and under walls and so on. And that's, I, you know, I like that stuff, but um, it's not, I'm not, you know, uh, I don't have a great love for sleeping bags and camping, but it was a necessary part of the process, you know. Was there any, uh, I guess, sticky situation where you were writing this, you know, there, there, you know, you, there are chapters when you talk about, you know, people giving out about stuff and uh, people being sucked and like a very, you know, unhappy things where there, where there moments where you were like thinking like, ah, oh, Jesus, why did I even get myself into that situation? Um, yeah. I mean, definitely, definitely. It was, um, it was, it was, you know, but I, I, I was going in sort of search of, of, of something and I felt quite pulled towards these things. So I would just go and I would try and find, but you know, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't a, I, I always have this joke that like when friends of mine write books, they go somewhere and someone invites them to a party and everyone like, you know, has a great time, like smoking pot together. And, you know, there's lots of beautiful people. Whereas like, I just spent a lot of time in really crap hotels and whatever. And then when I was in, uh, Rochdale someone tried to mug me actually and uh, oh. and it was just you know it was kind of it was so it was a real journey through uh you know I was running along the along the canal there and I was thinking you know god uh <laughs> so the, it was I, I, you were actually running away from yeah, yeah, yeah I was running away <laughs> and and I was just having this sort of I was thinking because that was in the lapwing chapter and the lapwings didn't come onto that roof and I was thinking you know if they just came now it'd be so so yeah so no, there were lots of little adventures and I saw so much of and I spent I think it's so easy to travel around and to to do it so quickly and to just kind of go to those places that everybody goes to. But when you're doing a book like this, you know, you end up standing for three hours in the same place in some town that people don't really go to anymore. And it gives. I remember this- that. I remember that part. I remember yeah. that. These are these are these descriptions that I that I talk about. I like when when you're really getting a reader into your like what was going on. You're standing in there and people are walking around and looking yeah, at yeah. you. It's like, oh, this guy is like clearly not from here. What is he doing? Here? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that. I mean, there's that there's that bit in. Uh, Rochdale where the guy comes out and smokes a cigarette and he probably does it every morning and he's like looking at me to try and work out what I'm looking at and I'm looking at something which isn't there at all because it hasn't been for a lot you know and we have this kind of really beautiful uh like moment there and then he just goes back inside and the snow's there and so so yeah it's uh yeah no lots of little adventures certainly so like you said the book is structured uh, there's a there's a 10 species uh, of birds that you're um trying to um really experience firsthand while while you still can and make a record of it and like we already said you you're making a lot of 
friends and sometimes not not so much friendly people like those who will try to mug you yeah. um so we obviously you know I, when i was when i was making notes for this podcast i ended up felt like i just want to discuss everything and it's like yeah. no we, no tommy we don't have like a six hours for this podcast so we're gonna pick out some some of the stuff that i think is most interesting for for me and for listeners to this podcast and uh, i want to start with something that, I, that we mentioned on the top of the show with moon jack and with nightingales can you please you know lay it out to to everybody uh the thing that that i you know like took away well like at first i took it like what is the deal with moonjack why it is an invasive species and that, well, how it is connected to nightingale and 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 everything that goes after so the book kind of starts with um moonjack in a way because i'm driving out of london and there's a shop there or there was a shop there and at one point in the in the mid 19th century, they were selling, they called them Asiatic deer, which I think probably were muntjac deer. So you had these um, sort of Victorian gentlemen who were buying muntjac deer and then putting them on their on their country estates. And um, eventually through people releasing them, really, they also, they had um, these things, um, these societies, because they felt that things were going to become extinct here and they needed to replenish with other species. So, um, Muntjac was, was sort of part of that. So the the, uh, the Duke of Bedford, um, he released a lot of them all over the country, um, and they've now really contributed to destroying woodland um, and scrub, which is obviously nightingale habitat. I think the interesting thing is that my understanding of it was that Muntjac are, you know, some people would almost say that, you know, Muntjac is solely responsible for destroying nightingale habitat. It's quite a kind of well-trodden um, narrative. But actually, you know, Muntjac are part of the problem. You know, Muntjac are definitely the fastest growing species of deer in Britain because they breed all year round, which is really interesting. Um, so, you know, they don't really have a close season. You can shoot, you know, if you want to shoot a baby Muntjac, if you want to shoot a pregnant Muntjac or whatever, um, you can do so because they don't have a close season. Um, but 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 definitely they are they are on the up and there was a time when people talked about them being very secretive deer and they said oh you know they're very secretive they don't like people so they won't really spread um you know and we're now in a situation where you know i'll see them in east anglia walking through people's gardens and so on um and obviously as, as you know as their numbers go up nightingale numbers decrease and there are lots of quite interesting studies when they um, when they sort of fence off bits of woodland and very quickly the nightingales go to those bits of woodland where there isn't any disturbance and where there aren't any muntjac. Hmm. Yeah. It, it, it's like with muntjac is interesting because, you know, in theory there, there are no muntjac in Ireland, but they are. Well, I, I think, I think, I mean, I've heard stories of, uh, of them being taken over there and that it's a really interesting thing because, you know, they, they provide for people who want to stalk a terrific quarry, but you know, how do you, you know, um, how do you sort of manage that? Because obviously there are people who want them to be there because they monetize the stalking of them, um, you know, and they are very delicious and so on. But certainly they aren't any good for nightingales or, or various other um, birds who need a similar habitat. So, um, yeah, so, so, so I mean, I know people who will say the only good muntjac is a, is a dead muntjac, but obviously those who are actually making money from people killing them <laughs> sort of very much want to be alive. And they're delicious. They're delicious as well. It's important to note. That, that, is, that is this thing, right? That um, This is where I'm, where I'm often uh, uncomfortable with hunters making this, this argument like, oh, we, you know, we have to you know, control the population and you know, invasive species and so on. Even when it comes to Zika 
um, in, in Ireland, which, which many ecologists will admit that they're not really invasive, but they're classified as invasive. That on one hand, they they make this argument that they want to, you know, eradicate and so on. But then, like you said, like, yeah, but actually you want them yeah, on yeah, the landscape. Yeah, yeah. The, and also the whole thing with people wanting to shoot trophies and so on, um, you know, so if you're going to cull them, you know, you're not really going to leave bucks to grow into bigger bucks and so on. Um, so it's really interesting. I mean, the, the stalker who I spent some time with in a wood in Suffolk uh, is very critical of people who monetize muntjac stalking. Um, but, you know, it's, it's yeah, I mean, part of what I want to do with this book really is to present the complexities of these various situations. You know, it's not a book that goes out to to sort of confirm one thing or to, to try and sort of denounce another thing. Um, it's just about going and listening to people. And it's quite interesting when you listen to people who are very involved in stalking and in hunting and in shooting. Um, quite often their views are very complex and they can be quite critical of, of sort of other parts of, of the, their sport. Yeah. That's important, that's important you mentioned that, 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 the, that the, the, the book doesn't offer... You know, like a one black and white solutions and and, and opinions. Because the, if if anything, it kind of outlines the complexity that is like always. You know, there's always this is happening, but there's also this happening. But there's yeah, and that's I think really important to acknowledge that. And and we spend so much of our lives sort of taking a small example of something and then deciding that that's that's representative of the whole. Whereas that's that's you know almost never the case. And I think it kind of comes down to as well. I mean you know, as you sort of highlighted, my interest is in, in good writing. And, you know, I think sort of thinking about writing as art, I mean, I don't think art really is, is about coming up with answers. You know, it's about exploring questions and, and trying to see things differently. And, um, you know, it's really interesting. There's a real trend now in nature writing for sort of, you know, the 10 species we need to reintroduce to make the world a better place or or whatever. And it's 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 pretty reductive, I think. And, and you actually, you have to you have to ignore various things to come to simple solutions. Um, you know, and if you try and go in search of sort of uh, lots and lots of different views, it's very hard to come to a solution at all. And I think that's something that's, that's important to recognize and to think about. Yeah. Like they say, never mind the answer. Let's ask the right questions first. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. A, that's the thing. Yeah. So you think that we're we we will have more moonjack in in Ireland, right? I they, I was talking with a very experienced deer manager and deer stalker in the early days of the podcast in Ireland, and he said something like, "Tommy, you you rather see the Bigfoot in Ireland than moonjack?" <laughs> and yet, and yet, yeah. on, on, on there's more and more sightings, and on every license, there is like you said, there is a moonjack. On, on yeah, the deer yeah. hunting license in Ireland, and this really? has no no close season on it. I don't so. know what their habitat. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how well their habitat requirements would be provided for in Ireland. Um, but I think they constantly surprise people. You know, they 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 sort of you know cause they're moving further and further and further north. But it'd be really interesting in 10, 15 years time. And I suppose in in a small way, you know, with the book, what I wanted it to do as well was to capture a moment in time. So it would be really interesting to look back in 15, 20 years. Um, you know, so I go and try and see a black grouse, for example, in Galloway. There are very, very few black grouse in Galloway. And it might be that, you know, in 15, 20 years time, there aren't any black grouse in Galloway at all. So it'll be a kind of interesting document at some point in the future. I hope that the purpose that of the book to you know be this last song is not going to come to fruition. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to yeah. be the last song, and that you will no. you know write another book revisit, revisiting yeah. all those species, and they'll still be there. That will be yeah. that will be that will be pretty cool. Thousands I, I really, of them. 
yeah, yeah. ideally ideally i wish you and readers and myself everybody this 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 thing that it ha happens in the future look um let's move to the next one and this is uh this is probably something that that uh sparks a lot of heated debate uh and this is hen harriers hen harriers yeah what is the like are you of the opinion that the that the persecution is the biggest threat to hen harriers or do you think it's just like one of many i think it's one of many you know and i think when we start trying to um to sort of highlight you know uh, and 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 take and pick off an individual um, sort of cause. Uh, it often leads us to ignoring others, um, which is a real sort of mistake. Um, I th you know, I think persecution is really interesting, and and I'm pretty blunt and straight up in the book about having witnessed not the persecution of hen harriers over the years, but the persecution of buzzards over the years. Um, but you know, I do think that there are more and more and more keepers who are realizing that actually if they're going to hang on and if their livelihood is 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 going to be possible in 10, 15 years time, you know, they have to be the ones um, who are doing, you know, everything they can to conserve hen harriers. So that's been a really interesting thing. And that bit of the book where I go out with Natural England to tag the hen harrier, I mean, that was one of the sort of richest experiences that I think I've ever had. And those guys were just really remarkable in the way that they are keen to work with everybody. Um, so, you know, I think that's really interesting. And, and, and more and more, I think people involved in shooting are sort of quick to denounce and call out those who are breaking the law. And I think that's only, that's only going to become more and more and more common. So I imagine at the moment, you know, if you're one of those remaining people who is breaking the law, I think you're probably getting hotter and hotter under the, under the collar. Hopefully. But would you say that this is, this is leading cause of, of the hen harrier, um, issues problems with the population well i think habitat loss is a big part of it and again it goes back to that thing of you know would you have hen harrier um habitat if you didn't have grouse shooting and you know would you have a greater problem with foxes if you didn't have grouse shooting um you know you probably would but then parts of grouse shooting have been responsible <laughs> for the eradication of hen harriers in places so it's sort of you know again it's anybody who's trying to simplify these issues i think is sort of either ignorant or um simplifying things and and they actually see them as, as being you know as complex as they are so so yeah i don't think i don't think you can say that there's a there's a kind of a leading cause as such but you know there are lots of people doing different things and to save lots of these species and you know to ensure that the hen harrier has a future you're going to have to have all of these people working together to try and solve all of the problems that the hen harrier has you know, and this is, I think, the problem because um, I, I, I was I was talking not long ago uh, about this exact issue that, especially in the UK, the 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 people who's supposed to work together for the benefit of nature and habitat seems to be so hopelessly divided. Yeah, yeah, and bashing heads. Yeah, you know, it it. Yeah, I, I'm kind of looking that at that from the distance because you know one i'm in ireland two i'm you know like coming from completely different background and it's just on it is unbelievable how sometimes almost childish on both sides to to avoid it from doubts is, is just like it is purposely going head on mm, mm. to you know stroke the conflict rather than try to what do you, what do your what do your views are on that? Is it is it really helpless? And we just need to you know uh, to me it almost feels like we need to replace everybody because people who are you know on this on these positions where they can make a 
difference. They have too much history with each other. And and it's just not going to work. I don't think it's so much. I mean, it is the people involved, but I think often it's the the, the culture. So, you know, I think the whole notion of kind of culture wars, which is a, a new notion or it's a new term, but that's existed for quite a long time. Um, and, you know, quite regularly, I'll get asked to write newspaper articles or features for magazines um, criticizing, um, you know, sort of... Um, uh, eco-politics or, you know, rewilders or, or whatever it may be. And the people asking me to write those pieces don't have an involvement in conservation, but they do have a political agenda. Um, so I think that we collectively really need to resist getting drawn into that um, because it's it's sort of, in some ways, it's easy to do and you can also use that to your benefit. So if you've got sort of uh, right-wing um, peers or whatever, you know, they they might fight your cause in terms of shooting because you know sort of shooting in these 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 sort of this sort of political agenda have quite a history of kind of working together but actually i think it really does for shooting in the long term so you you kind of need almost for for field sports and for conservation to be like an apolitical thing um because although short term gains might be made um, by by politicizing these various things, I think in in the future it it sort of or in the long term it, it kind of ruins it for everybody. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's... I sat down with uh, I sat down at um, very very strange circumstances, but I ended up having lunch with um, I won't I won't name him, but 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 the guy who essentially led the 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 Brexit campaign um, in this in this country who's now sort of not particularly involved in politics at all but it was an extraordinary guy to sit down with um, and he spoke to me at length about field sports but then when we really got down to talking about field sports it became clear that he didn't really know I think what he was talking about at all but it was on his radar as an issue that he could use um, you know and I know I know people who have been involved in um, in hunt service so like huntsmen you know when when fox hunting was was legal and the British National Party so truly a sort of fascist neo-nazi um, political party tried to um, sort of get the 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 fox hunters on side you know and and they said look nobody's going to stand up for you but we will kind of thing so i think throughout history you know from oswald mosley and um you know and then obviously labor sort of decided that they were going to ban fox hunting but but the countryside has been kind of used and abused um and and those in the countryside who are who are sort of cast out um their upset has been a force that people have tried to harness politically for a very long time and it's kind of resisting that um, that matters. And, and I think that is why perhaps we are at loggerheads in this country to a greater extent than they are in other countries because of that history. Mm -hmm. I think you're dead. Yeah, I think you're dead right. You know, I remember an uh, episode when I was talking about wolves in, in, in continental Europe. And and the the sentence that stuck in my head was like you know like a wolf is pretty resilient it can you know deal with the habitat and can deal with people and can deal with this and that but I'm not sure if it can deal with politics yeah the, yeah, yeah the, the yeah. moment the moment the wolf becomes a political player yeah and is yeah, being yeah. used for then it, this is the biggest threat and you kind of um, expressing the same sentiment and this is you, you know like I. This is something that I noticed that uh, quite often, you know, hunting is under pressure. It's under pressure for social acceptance. And, and that makes people frustrated and makes people also scared. 
And, you know, what, what is the better way of, you know, getting someone to do what you want, like get him scared, right? And then once he's, once he's scared, it's like, hey, don't worry, we got you. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the sort of cultural wars all over, really. It's, it's exactly as you say. Yeah, that, that is the, that is the, the process. Mm. Listen, tell me uh, and, and our listeners, what is brood meddling? What is, is you know, in terms of hen harriers, what is brood meddling? Why it is so controversial and, you know, everything around that? So, yeah, so with um, hen harriers, they are like semi-colonial nesters. So the great fear for the gamekeeper is that if you get one hen harrier nest, then you get another hen harrier nest and you get another hen harrier nest. Um, so what they will do, uh, what Natural England are doing is taking hen harrier chicks and they're putting them in other places where um where you know there aren't any hen harriers so essentially it's sort of using um an overabundance as some would see it in some places to then um fill uh, a, a hole as it were in another place which is obviously very controversial because there's a notion that it merely placates um grouse shooting interests so again it's become a politicized issue and do you think that like so there was like a good results i i think uh, with it with it yeah yeah exactly and i suppose you know again as i've said this is not a book that that really tries to come up with any answers um it just kind of explores these issues and is a sort of travelogue but um i think what would be very interesting would be if you could try in a in a in a parallel universe to discuss brood meddling with the politics taken out of it um, that would be, and also there's just a bit of a notion of a kind of, you know, I told you so thing every time very positive results come out, um, you know, and that sort of, yeah, I mean, social media, I think is, is the cause of a lot of, um, of, of ill will <laughs> between, you know, these, these sides and even the notion of kind of two sides, I don't think really exists. I mean, I think this book sort of shows that when you talk to people, you realize that actually, um, you know, that their views are very complex. Mm -hmm. You know that that was one of the things when I was when I was uh, starting with all this nature and podcast and blog and everything. You know, like we had the conversation before we started that that you know I was born and raised in the city, so I was kind of getting into this uh, space. Let's call it uh, fairly late, and I was very naive, thinking like there is absolutely no controversy no any you know like everybody wants nature protected everybody wants you know uh conserve and protect habitat and all that and then you know step by step i started uncovering this like oh my god like what's going on here i i thought this is like um and you know the the longer i i speak about those things and uh the longer i cover that like like i mentioned there's sometimes um it's just a pity that that yeah no it really is and i think it comes down to you know we in lots of instances we sort of put humans first and we put our kind of human um you know feelings first and often we have to do things that are uncomfortable um but we we sort of have to look at the end result and take ourselves out of it as much as possible but that's what we just struggle to do i mean i think at the moment with the capicale that's become a really interesting thing so you have um you know people who are who are saying that we have to you know, make pretty bold decisions in terms of pine martens and pine martin control. And then you have people who are saying that actually, well, you know, Capicalia just being politicized and, you know, they're being used as a sort of totem among those who just want to kill lots of predators. And, um, you know, I sort of, there will be little bits of truth in all of that. Um, 
But actually, what really matters here is ensuring that Capacelli don't become extinct as they have done once already. And I think we'll probably still be arguing um, amongst ourselves, you know, on the very day that the, the last Capacelli dies in, uh, in, in Scotland. Yeah. And what's the situation with Pine Martin? Are they being threatened? Are their their population was in a decline as well? Are they doing really Yeah, well? I mean they've done they it comes into this book a little bit. Um Pine Martins so there've been various I, I you know I'm I'm not I'm not a, a an expert on Pine Martins in any sense, but they are their numbers are on the up. So their numbers in Galloway are on the up. Um you know they almost completely disappeared from sort of Abernethy and then um you know people started to see them back there. So you know that they're really like charming animals. But again, it's that thing of, you know, um, they've caused sort of great division. And, and you know, there's a lot of, you know, rewilding is a political issue. So it's, and that's, and that's, uh, that's the sort of truth of the. Ugh, of the you matter, mentioned the R word. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We might go back to, to Capri Kelly and, um, and Pine Martin and, and Badgers as well, because yeah. Badgers are featured more than once in your book. Yeah, they they come up all the time. And it's it's like you know like I I remember I had the uh this 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 uh conversation with um Peter Kearns from uh Scotland Big Picture. Right, yeah. And it was and it was kind of similar thing like every animal we touch on there's a controversy. It's like yeah, yeah. there's, there's yeah. really like no yeah. animal that you can talk about it and there's no controversy about it. Where is a badger? Where is a salmon? Where is like something? No, like it's all true. But it's, it's because it's, they become they become symbols, you know. It's like the hen harrier has become symbolic, and um, you know, I mean, the black grouse. The black grouse is sort of political, but perhaps not as political as some of the others. Um, but but yeah, the badger. I mean, it's, it, lots of reviewers of this book have pointed to that that badgers come out of this book very badly, um, and it's yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the guy in Wales who I go and see the the guy uh, Charles Grisdale, who's doing everything he can for lapwings. I mean, he like goes to bed at night thinking about badgers and wakes up thinking about badgers, and he thinks that you know badgers short circuit his uh, electric fence and so on. So they they're extraordinary, but also this terrific respect that he has for them. Um, I can't remember the line exactly, but when he says, you know, when Billy Brock is out there, when it's rather fantastic nose. And so there's this, he kind of mythologizes the badger in an interesting way. So it's this kind of hate figure, but also this 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 figure with this terrific might and almost these superpowers is, is quite fascinating. Yeah, badgers, badgers are, are, are really interesting um, from, from various, like, you know, in some extent, it's the largest predator that we have. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't even think about it that way, but no. it is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and as such, it, it, it can have an impact on, um, but I don't think there's, there are no problems with numbers of badgers, is it? Well, it all depends again on who you ask. I mean, we've, we've probably got more badgers now than we've ever had. Um, I, th- I mean, I sort of don't don't hope somebody will say that's absolutely wrong. I mean, I know there are people who will say that's absolutely wrong, but um, you know, I mean, obviously the badger cull has happened, but you've got the problem with badgers and bovine TB. But you've got people who will tell you that it's not a problem at all. But then badgers and ground nesting birds is is a problem. Um, so it's 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 uh, yeah, no, it's it's a very it's a very difficult you one. You said it. You said it straight away in the, in your book. It's a political issue and it's a vote losing issue. Badgers, badgers, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, like, like nobody wants to even touch it because it is. Well, yeah, I mean, that was quoting that guy Charles Grisdale is that nobody will go near it, and also people's understanding of the countryside and understanding of ecology is very. I mean, even people who are involved in it, I think, sometimes sort of don't see things exactly as they are, according to some people. But you know, 
if you're in the city, you think badges are just terrific. You know, your average voter thinks that badges are wonderful. They look really sweet and they do look really sweet. Um, but, you know, I mean, politics is a short term thing and you aren't going to. I mean, I saw Jeremy Hunt is going to, he said he's going to repeal the fox hunting ban if he, which, which is just a crazy, uh, crazy, you know, the countryside is a, is a difficult issue for politicians to touch for sure in whichever way they try and touch it. Yeah, unfortunate, unfortunate. Listen, uh, let's let's finish that off. You you mentioned black grouse as well, and you also said that this is like a highly politicized, as if it, you know, we we didn't touch up enough politicized subjects. So please lay it lay it out like why why black grouse is such a special. Well, I was saying black grouse is black grouse maybe avoids some of the. Um, I mean, black grouse is really interesting, but I think because they do very well out of native cattle grazing. So you know, I mean, I suppose that in fact, you know, thinking about it, it is very political because you've got trees associated with black grouse and destroying black grouse habitat but they're sort of um you know they did very well i think they were almost in every british county at one point so when you get archaeologists who are digging away beneath hadrian's wall they find lots of um black grouse bones because the roman army would just eat black grouse because they were just everywhere um and and you know now there are places that are disappearing at you know an extraordinary rate every year they just drop and drop and drop and drop and drop um and you know Part part of that is uh, commercial forestry is a big is a big issue, but also you know in a world where uh, we have this notion that you know beef is destroying the world and and you know cows are destroying the world, where where you've got native cattle grazing, um, they they can have a really positive impact on black grouse habitat. So that's quite a fascinating. Um, thing and it's quite a kind of disruptive narrative to dominant narratives about the the, the consequences of cattle yeah that's that's uh <laughs> that's a whole <laughs> that's a whole different issue but i suppose as well i mean just thinking about you know in my black grass chapter there's a landowner in my black grass chapter who's turned a lot of his estate uh it's not a massive estate but he's turned a lot of it most of it maybe even um over to commercial forestry and you know i said to him sort of you know why? And he said, well, I've transformed the economics of this estate. And it's sort of, so I didn't want to in any way suggest that, that, you know, he is everything that's wrong or to create this notion that he's some sort of bogeyman figure. I mean, I think he's done something that a lot of people would do. And, and, you know, he's got a very big house there that he's trying to heat and so on and trying to repair. So it's sort of deeply tragic that the black grass are almost gone. But I think actually, you know, it would have been hard. It would have been very radical for him to have done things differently. And maybe now there are, there are ways he could have done things differently but back then when he was doing them i think perhaps trees were the only way out that he could see so i wanted to try and um cr you know create a picture of that complexity yeah yeah no and no doubt you're you're succeeded it was interesting thing about black grouse chapter that their 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 life life history is is really also what is uh specific because i i think you said that uh, they are not protected where they're if they're not there they're not protected but the the very the very uh, nature of their life history is that they're moving from, from yeah, place exactly. to place so they're somewhere and they're protected and they're moved somewhere else and they're not protected there anymore so it's yeah. kind of like you you use this this analogy they're, they're closing doors behind them yeah exactly, exactly. they cannot come back because then yeah it's, it's, they spread i mean it's like capicalia as well they, they spread a very very long way so the hens the dispersal of the hens they will go a very long way but you know i mean so like the estate that i went to for for capicalia it's like ninety thousand acres and the guy was just saying it's not big enough similarly for black grouse because you know you end up with these isolated populations and they need to be able to go over there and go over there and go over there and then birds from over there need to go over here and so on um, but if you just don't have um, 
the, the possibility of doing that, then you know you end up with isolated populations which eventually just go. Which is it's really interesting when you think about the the scale on which you need to be working to really make a difference. Hmm. That is a that is a one of the problems, right? That the, the the animals are doing best are the secretive that they're breeding all year round. <laughs> these are, these these are the ones that are doing well, and if you if the if the animal is like no, I'm not breeding that rapidly, and it needs a lot of space and a lot of you know specific habitat, then it's hard for those animals. It's also hard to protect them because of the of the of the requirements. Right, uh, listen, Patrick, let's. Uh, Let's let's go to the kitty wakes, and you're you're asking me which one was uh was a, was my my favorite, or maybe like not favorite, but um that stuck with me the most, and uh, and the kitty wakes stay, stay with me the most for for two reasons. First one is that they are affected by uh, disappearing sand eel that are that are being being hammered, and you know like I'm as an angler, I also. Uh, you know, like all, all the anglers, the bass fishing, especially they're noticed that, well, obviously there's less and less bass to catch, but I, I, I believe it is related to the decline in sand eels. Even uh, probably a couple of days, maybe a week ago, I, I, I made a thread on, on, on Twitter where I said like, yeah, you know, I don't really even remember the last time when I was wading through the, you know, like a sandy, shallow kind of estuary. You used to, you know, with every step, you were kind of spooking like a, like a hundreds, if not thousands of sand deals that were running away from your feet. I don't remember when there was the last time. You know, sometimes there's like a couple, but usually you're just, you know, it, it feels like wading through the dead water. There's no life in the water. So that was, you know, one of the things like, oh, it's not only... Uh, angling, but you know, it's 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 obviously other species as well who relies on sand eel. So that was that was one thing. I don't know if you want if you want to throw any comments here on that. Well, I, I just think yeah, it was really interesting that people sort of the extent to which they recognize that or otherwise, and then that that whole thing of everything going north. So you know, the sand eels eating the plankton, and the plankton are going north because of climate change, and then the kitty wakes have to follow them. So that whole thing is just is just really interesting, and I also. I mean, I just thought with that, with the Kittywake chapter, the um, the ornithologist who I spent some time with, who was saying to me that what she really likes about Kittywakes is that they, in some ways, don't really have a home. They're just this kind of sea-going creature that lives somewhere out there for so much of its life. I thought that was really interesting because that contrasts so much with, you know, some of the other birds in the book, which have a real sense of place and sort of, you know, a local place. So that was that was, I think, a really nice contrast with that. Yeah. Yeah, and and she also, I, I think it was the same the same lady. She also had an interesting thing that you know, if we lose if we if we lose kitty wakes, like you know, we we wouldn't lose much. So so what? Like to, <laughs> to, to me, it was shocking. It was shocking. So like, how, how did I can't you... remember that specific. Well, I can't remember that quote specifically. Yeah, yeah, it was it was something like, oh no, I mean, we wouldn't lose much if if we lose. Them. Oh, if they went, other things would come, or or or. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I I think there was a I can't remember that quote exactly, but there was a sort of she was detached in a way because I think she was assigned, and I don't mean to say that she didn't care because I think she cared very deeply, and there was quite a lot of thought that came through. Um, but you know, she was working on quite so she was doing the kitty wake um, counts. She was working on a very large scale, um, which was quite interesting, and she had observations of things that had come as those had went, and she. Her sense of time, I think, was was quite deep. So, you know, small fluctuations 
she wasn't going to get really concerned about because things kind of come and go. And um, so that was, that was quite interesting. It was quite a, it was quite a philosophical conversation in a way on a very, very windy morning up there on the cliffs in Orkney. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I noticed that. So that, that was a, that was a very interesting chapter because like you said, they, they, for a lot of people, I think there are just goals. They're not really yeah, like, yeah, yeah, kind of yeah. Di distinguishing between like what type of goal is. Well, it. there was that bit in the um, um, there was the the sculptor who you know said to me that when his son was with some fishermen out in the sea, his family had all been fishermen, and his son said to these fishermen, "What's that?" And they said, "That's a mar." And mm -hmm. yes. uh, you know, and he said, "What's that?" And they said, that, "You know," and he realized that all these guys knew were that these were seabirds. They were just that's that's. Uh, which is really fascinating because, you know, this guy's family, this sculptor's family knew all of the birds that were there when they were fishermen. Um, so that sort of loss and that disconnection that I think comes through mechanization and comes through sort of um, using um, technology is really interesting. So technology gives you so much and allows you to see so much, but in some ways it also means that you stop seeing um, things at all or you see things very differently, which is a kind of fascinating thing. Yeah, I think it's, you know, like a common thread. It, it, it kind of provides layer of abstraction yeah, and and then you start starting to interact with with the world really through that layer of abstraction and exactly like, yeah. like, like yeah. every layer of abstraction it makes some things more easier easier and more accessible, but also isolates you from complexity. Well, there was that poet um, Katrina Porteous who said to me in Northumberland. I mean, she she knows her birds well and she writes about birds really really well but she said to me she's never got on with binoculars so she doesn't like binoculars and i thought that was very interesting because to write about birds in terms of poetry you don't really you know writing about them as just sort of shapes or you know that sense that you get of them can be very powerful and actually that desire to see more and to see everything and to see things in really sort of minute detail there's something that slightly um undermines elements of poetry or, or sort of poetic forces about that which i think is quite interesting yeah oh i i, I this is not the first time i heard that uh i heard it i i heard the similar opinion in in relation to music you oh know, really uh, yeah i was i was really into club music in the early days and and they, each time we heard a song we were like oh this is like this instrument this is like roland tb 303 and this is like tr 909 and whatever and and we were like really passionate about it and we're really like yeah we know all these instruments when we hear the song and someone goes like dude you're just ruining that for me i just yeah. want to hear the music and you're just dissecting this to every single element of it <laughs> so that's a kind of like a similar uh yeah 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 i know exactly approach exactly. yeah i think that uh in a, in a Feynman's book uh uh richard Feynman, there was like a similar um sentiments where Feynman liked to always kind of dissect and understand very little elements and his his artist friends are like dude like forget about it you just you just look at look at the whole thing so i i guess that's a uh, we see a pattern here um listen patrick we said we said a lot about conflict we said a lot about this uh detachment which again is something that we we talk a lot on on this podcast in, in this detachment and i think that overall you know after after reading uh this book i had this picture that they were really like um again pattern emerged where on one hand so so obviously you're you're trying to present different points of view and and also when i was reading reviews 
I I heard that your is this excellent book that tries to bridge the divide between the you know city folk and countryside and and kind of you know connect that. Um, I, I don't even know whether that was one of your intentions, but that was one how the how the book uh, was was reviewed in, in in I think more than one place. But what I noticed was kind of conflict or maybe tension between the old way of life and a new way of life in general. Like in in, in almost every chapter, when you talk to these people, you could you could see like oh these are the old way of life that is kind of going away. And it's it's disappearing, and this is the new way of life that is you know replacing or you know in either through evolution or even through tension and and conflict the the old way of life. And overall, you know, after being on this journey and talking with all those people, do you think that the old way of life were more um, nature friendly and more connected, uh, or whether the old way of life were was really the root of the problem that we're dealing with, and now yeah. you know the new way of life kind of exacerbates that. Yeah, depends how far back you. I mean, I went to see um, uh, a guy called Graham Denny on his farm in Suffolk, and I said to him, he, he's there on a small farm with lots of hedges and doing really good things for turtle doves. And I said to him, if you took your grandfather for a walk around this farm, would he recognize it? And he said, well, he probably wouldn't, you know, because actually it was him who pulled all these hedges out. He didn't really have time for hedges. He said, but if I took my great grandfather for a walk around the farm, he would, you know, because he farmed it in the way that I farm it now. So that's a really interesting thing. So you have this sort of um, great change that happens. And obviously after the war, there was a great change that happened. And during the war, there was a great change that happened. But I think we sort of, what I think is positive at the moment is that we can't really go back to the way things were. So, you know, in many ways, I don't think there were always people who had a huge amount of love for the things that lived on the land, but the ways in which they worked meant that there was space for those things as well. Um, you know, and we can't go back there because, you know, things have changed. Life has changed, you know, on gray partridge shoots in east anglia you might have had six seven gamekeepers where you only now have one um you know and to do things in the way that they did them then both in terms of agriculture and in terms of game management required a huge amount of manpower that just isn't possible now but i think we have to look back at the way things were and try and sort of use parts of that and use sort of what we can learn from that in terms of how we go forwards so it's not about sort of going back to the past i think it's about trying to sort of move to the future in a more positive way and definitely i mean you know there was a time not that long ago when it was just about kind of bigger is better so a bigger tractor is better and you know bigger fields are better and so on and you know more aggressive pesticides are better and i think we we sort of now are realizing the, the errors of our ways there certainly mm. Mm. So you overall, you you see the 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 t tide is turning. Yeah. I think I think it really is, and I think the question is just you know, is it turning quickly enough? And you know, I was standing the other day at a a book launch. Um, a guy called Jake Fines, who's the conservation manager at Hokum, really nice guy, and there were lots of people in the room who are doing really positive things. But I just I got a slight feeling there that everybody felt that everyone was on board and I don't think that's the case. So it's, it's, you know, about how you get other people on, on board, I think. Um, and I, I suppose partly with this book, I wanted people to, 
recognize um, the ways in which birds are part of British culture. I think British culture would be much poorer without these birds. So, you know, like Keats with his nightingales and so on, um, you know, Rayform Williams with his turtle dove and so on. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, without these birds, there are certainly people who would hurt an awful lot when they go and much more than, than most of us. But I think collectively we would be set to lose an awful lot. So it's sort of highlighting, highlighting that, that that's why these birds matter yeah in part yeah for sure and like you like you mentioned now and i mentioned earlier the cultural aspect and cultural element of of the book is is, is fantastic and you know it, it gave me a lot of also knowledge about you know the cultural um landscape in in in, in the uk um listen, how do you how do you see the future uh plays out and 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 you know like a two-part question uh, how do you see the future plays out and what is what is like a you know words of wisdom almost for the listeners um to to make it a, a better future i think you know I, I think what i learned through this book is just the the importance of listening i mean at one point the title of this book was but if you listen carefully which obviously relates to trying to hear these birds but also trying to hear people and trying to hear each other um so some people have said that this book doesn't present a way forwards. And I think it certainly doesn't present a way forwards in the way that some other books do in terms of like, well, all you need to do is do this, 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 and this, and then we're going to live in a utopia. You know, we're never going to live in a utopia, but if we can listen to each other um, and we, I mean, you know, there have been a few people who've been surprised about some of the people I've spoken to in the course of writing this book, you know, and I think that's very sad because, you know, the, the wider you can sort of cast your net and the more people you can bring into the conversation, then I think the, the brighter the future is going to be. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think, you know, I'm not really one for trying to kind of share any wisdom with other people. Um, but I, th I think, I think listening is very important. You know, I think there's so much out there that we can learn from. Um, and if we sort of combine the knowledge that people have, um, and the, the sort of abilities that people have, then we can make a real difference. Certainly. Yeah. That's uh that, that these are words of, words of wisdom right there. Uh, right there folks um, once again, in search of one last song, uh, Patrick Galbraith, uh, the link is in the description of the show. Go and click it and uh, buy the book. You won't regret it. Patrick, thank you so much for a conversation. Thank it's you very much, Tommy. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 